inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And without further ado, it is uh, such a high honor to bring in somebody who was part of the milieu and tapestry of the uh, Southern Oregon uh, psychedelic circus known as the Merry Pranksters. And he... Uh, he came on my radar um, several times. I, I am pretty confident that Roy Seaburn mentioned him uh, in our conversations and then came back up again with um, with Izzy. And uh, my guest is somebody who's uh, a decorated performer, not a musician uh, per se, but uh, somebody who, who gets on the bandstand and uh, their job is to take the audience out of their original mindset and get them into the spirit mind so that they can sit back and be entertained and this, this cat makes it look somewhat easy, but in reality, that is really some of the hardest stuff to do in the world, and especially in this day and age with the uh, the amount of distractions. And one of his partners in crime was the great Ken Kesey, and um, just here today to, to talk about leadership and love, overcoming adversity on the bandstand, and the lineage of his yogic practices. Philip Dietz, an honor. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you very much, Jake. It's an honor, man. Um, were you always somebody who, um, like, cre- uh, were, were you in theater arts from an early age? Uh, yes, I, I went to acting school in New York. Uh, and uh, let's see, it was about 1960, 61, 62. Spent a little time in Hollywood, went to Europe. When I came back from Europe, I came to Oregon, and that's when I met Ken. You know, Ken was a very, very inclusive in his theater movement. He wanted you to be involved. It wasn't just actors on the stage. It was the audience involvement that really was key to what he was doing, and that's what really made it just lovely to be around. That That is so beautiful because, I mean, basically – that template uh, is so, you know, it's so interesting. Um, <clears throat> when you first, when you went to school in in New York, in acting school, was there a curriculum? I mean, what's interesting is that a lot of the jazzers that I interview, if, <clears throat> if you were playing quote-unquote jazz music in 1965 and going to Juilliard, there was no jazz program. There were maybe two jazz curriculums <laughs> in, the, in the whole in the whole United States. And so people could were literally making up the language on their own with their peers. Would you say that there was an element of growth in theater arts 
at that time? Was there really any curriculum at that time, or were you guys kind of on well, cutting it up? Well, that that was that time was right before method acting came on the scene and became the the way to do it. Um, and prior to that, it was kind of catch catch can. Yeah, you had a curriculum that you followed, but it was really loose. Mm, I love it. I love this. So, so, so tell me about like, what was, and I'm just curious also, like, um, because so many cats, if they went to Berkeley or North Texas and they were going to school, um, they weren't, they were already professional musicians. A lot of cats would come off the road just to get off the road because the road can eat you alive or they would, uh, learn a new instrument but they were already professional musicians whereas today you have cats who are paying ungodly amounts of money to go to institutions and because the significance of music has changed so much in our culture there really is no guarantee that there's any any work for them outside of college what was the future of 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 acting when you was there a a lively were you considered a profession (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see. Yeah. I'll, I'll just go just go where you go, man. You're on the there, stage right now, man. There 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 is no future in acting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, then why were you crazy enough to do it? In you, it's performing is somehow something that you almost have to do. It's uh, Ken was that way. He he loved being on stage. He, he was a magician. Uh, he just loved performing. And uh, and that's that's who we are. We love performing. We love being on the stage. We love working the instrument, you know. And your body is your instrument. That's right. You have, you have to train it. But, I mean, when you, when you went to Europe, or did you have some gigs there? I mean, or you just went to travel? I'm just trying to, I mean, because, I, I mean, Ken... Ken went, uh, Babs told me, you know, Ken went to Hollywood, but he was beat out by a guy named Paul Newman, you know, those blue eyes, you know, he couldn't do it. So he, so, or he just got, you know, there was just one better than him, but actually he said failure is, is the greatest thing that can happen. You know, uh, that was his, one of his lines, but were you, were you gigging in Europe or was that just sort of, no, I I was in Hollywood at the time and my father died and I inherited, I inherited a little bit of money. And I went to Europe for a year, uh, and just traveled. So interesting. So then you co- and then why did you choose to come back to the bastion of, of Eugene well, or, or, or or Oregon? I mean, because that is God's. It still remains God. I mean, I feel terrible with the horrible fires, and it's just unbelievable. But man, that is still the. I, I every time I think about that state, I just it's just the most. It's the greatest piece of land in this country. Well, you, you have to understand Hollywood, and why I came here is because in Hollywood, it's like, oh, I really enjoy what you did. Uh, you know, I think I can use you. Uh, I'll give you a call. We'll do lunch. That means no. It means goodbye. That means you'll never hear from me again. You know it. And that's, it's hard to live under those circumstances. And um, when I came back from Europe, I just didn't want to do that. 
and I was in St. Louis, and somebody read a letter, said, oh, I'm living uh, out in Oregon, and I need some help, we're going to live communally, and so I went out there. I had a ball of hash that I brought back from Europe, and uh, I came to Oregon and found these people and started helping working on the commune. Okay, now, now just just for a minute, I just I my brain is splitting open right now because I'm really going to go out on a limb here. But were you hipped to the commune by Arzinia Richardson? Because Arzinia is a dear friend, and I, I, maybe that was where I first heard your your, your name. But because he was he was ripping it up in the ghettos of St. Louis, playing he was playing for tap dancers. Man, those guys were on fire. Were you part of that contingent? No, Arzini and I grew up in St. Louis. Oh, this is not, this is warming my heart. This is better than Thanksgiving right now, dude. Yeah. Are I you mean, kidding me? I tell me about growing when you first connect with Ar, with Arzinia. Oh, it was actually out here. Unbelievable. Uh, Wait, I, so you you both came from there, but never knew each other in St. Or or you never. No, you, you, I, I'm sorry, you weren't there, but you were there at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I when I came back, that's when I met him. It's, the whole letter and reading about Oregon happened in St. Louis with Arzinia, but we didn't really get to know each other until we moved out here. And there was, uh, the commune didn't work. Um, Arzinia was hitting on Judy, uh, and uh, Jerome was hitting on Ginger, and uh, it, it just, it turned into the the commune who was screwing everybody and so it just like an orgy work. like an orgy fest kind of it was just a little yeah, the, yeah. wait so we, i just want to be clear because um i've done two interviews with arzenia and he so so you did uh, like maybe like when you got to st louis somehow you connected with him and you were reading the same letter i just want to make i want to be clear that you you got to know each other out in eugene but did you know did you connect first in st louis and where was who was the letter sent from we, we we met in St. Louis. You met there, okay. Right. And the letter was sent by somebody who was already in Oregon to uh, Jerome and Judy and Arzinia. So. Oh, man. So then, and so you, at the time, because, I mean, Arzinia, uh, what can I say? He was already, he was an established uh, post-bop post jazzer, pretty entrenched, and then he got involved with um, Earl... I'm going to, the Kings, I can't remember their, their full, I have to look up the names, but really amazingly amazing jazz players, a, a, a husband and wife and Eugene, but then, so his, his incentive was to go out there and live a simpler life, but for you, <laughs> I, I, maybe that's the wrong word, but I just, I, you know, it was, it was uh, to get out of the racket or the rat, I, you know, but the point is that you, what was your, so you, you were hip to Keezy because you knew his writings, but you had not met him before. That's yeah, that's right. I I had met him. I was very familiar. Ever everybody well, everyone of my age group you know, was familiar with the electric Kool Aid acid test, and so when I came up here, I was really familiar that he was here. But uh, my wife got a job with the Springfield Creamery. Of course, yes. Uh, this is so beautiful. My God. And so shortly after that, I got a job with the Springfield Creamery. And that's where we really got to know the Keezys. And uh, I became the plant manager of uh, the creamery. And uh, 
well, the rest is history with Nancy's honey yogurt. The when, only person, yeah. the only person who worked there longer than my wife was Nancy. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, yeah. so, well, so and of course, Chuck and Sue. But, well, yeah, yeah, Chuck and I mean, so when I, what year did you come to? Did you did you move to Eugene? Uh, I came back from Europe in '71, and I'd say early '72, right around '72, I was here. Well, can you talk as best as memory serves? Wasn't that? I mean, when you got out there, the creamery was not in good financial shape. Is that right? Uh, no, the creamery was not in good financial shape. There was a little hiccup where one of the distributors had uh, run up a big bill, and so that's when. Uh, Chuck and Sue asked the Grateful Dead to do a concert, which they did, and that concert is what saved the Creamery. We're now so talk a little bit about um, your um, how how much like were you there that day? I mean, can you talk about that experience at, in in Vanita? Oh yeah, oh, in '72. Yeah, well, because that was that saved the Creamery, and then I don't know how much. After that, Nancy came along with Nancy's yogurt, but I mean... It... Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Nancy was there way before the... the uh... <laughs> we, were, we were running batches of yogurt when we first started, uh, 100 gallons at a time. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and by the time I started with the creamery, it went up to two, three, four. Pretty soon, it was up to 1,000 gallons a week. Oh. It really changed things. With, and so, so, um, well, I just want to read this from uh, my one of my radio interviews with Arzenia and then have you riff on this. He's like, so he was in a, a group called the Black Artist Group. He said, the Black Artist Group I had been playing and broke up. So I had a few people that my family was associated with decided we were going to pool all of our money and buy a farm in Cottage Grove, Oregon. <laughs> we were looking forward to living in a commune there. One day, I drove into Eugene and saw Sonny King playing with a group at a bar. I said to him, hey, man, we're going to play music together. I'll see you in a couple months. I just knew that we would play together, but I needed some time to move my family. Um, once we were settled, I found out where Sonny was playing in Eugene, and we met. From that day on, I was his bass player. I was also doing a radio show at KLCC in Eugene called Pure Jazz. I would, have, I would have guys like Bill Evans come in and do an interview about things that we had collaborated on. I met Ken Kesey at KLCC, and we really hit it off big time. Uh, you know, Kesey would invite me to play bass when he was reading his novels. It involved a quartet with uh, my dear friend Schuster, Stephen Schuster, Art Maddox, Kesey, and myself. I mean, you're part of that. I mean, I cannot believe that I – what an honor it is to talk to you. I mean, did you, outside of singing for your supper because you were working at the – Creamery, can you talk about when the light bulb went off about Dietz getting involved in entertainment and creation with the pranksters? Like, is there a seminal kind of story when you started to realize well, that, that your talents were going to really lend themselves perfectly to, to this group? Okay, rephrase that question. You just, you know, what you know what it is like. You clearly, this commune thing has to be explored deeper. But, but at this, okay. yeah, I mean, like, how come of all places it was Cottage Grove and 
there was was there rumblings in St. Louis that there was really this alternative. I just it's amazing to me that of all places you wound up there. Okay, let 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 me straighten out. Arzenia may be the largest exaggerator. <laughs> He's doing the best he can about many things. Okay. Uh, he didn't put any money into it. Of company. course he didn't. Yeah, no, he didn't have any money. This, yeah. this was all sponsored by Doc Webb and, and Jerome Garger. Wow. Those so. are names that are not in my vernacular right now. Okay. Okay, so these, those were St. Louis cats that knew, that were hip to the scene out there. Yes. Got yeah. it. Well, well, no, they they decided they wanted to live communally. And they had men in St. Louis, and, and Doc had money, and... Uh, Jerome was a school teacher, uh, taught college, so they had some bucks. And how Arzenia got in there, I'm not quite sure because, <laughs> you know, what what he had was a major mouse. So. Well, he must have been a badass player too, though. But I mean, you you oh you, well, I, yeah I, yeah his his bass he he played bass <laughs> he really did. So I just want to be clear though, because talking to Phil Dietz here on the Jake Feinberg show, and he's already been blowing my mind. Can you talk just about, like, did you have an acting gig? Did you, you didn't, you didn't like the Hollywood uh, racket. So, you know, obviously, but I mean, were you performing in St. Louis at all? I mean, were you gigging at that time? Well, yeah, in, in St. Louis, after I'd come, gotten out of the acting school, I came back and did a year's worth of uh, theater in, in St. Louis. And then the theater burned down. And that's about when I moved to Hollywood. Um, and so let, let, let me tell you how I got involved. Break it down. I, I knew what was going on. And I just went out to the farm one day uh, to talk to Ken. And I told him, I said, I wanted to be part of the troop. And he didn't say anything. And about two weeks later, he called and he said, we're having a meeting. We're going to have a luncheon. So I went to the luncheon, and he said, oh, by the way, we're going to do a play. It's called Twister, and Phil, you're going to be the scarecrow. And that was the beginning of it, where I actively got involved with Ken and theater at the same time. I mean, I had I had done uh, the hoo-hahs with him, and been all along for that scene but this was different this was actually working on a play that can be written so um i just want to be i also just just for chronology's sake here doc and and the other cat jerome those cats were in st louis and they were they called you in la and were like yo we're going up here you weren't is that what happened no 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 they're both from st louis Right. And when I came back from Europe, we met in St. Louis uh, very briefly. Right. Because then I, I headed out here. Right. So you, so you headed, but you, so, but it, so you all read the letter and, and, and did you travel out all at the same time from St. Louis or? or no, okay. no, no, no. It was all separate. Um, Doc Webb came out first and then Jerome and then Arzenia. And then, and then, I don't want to jump too far ahead. I mean, you, you, you went to, so you wound up living in a commune, and, and I mean, did you and your wife, were you able to to stay on the straight and narrow, or did you wind up kind of in this uh, 
this orgy milieu? Well, I I hadn't met my wife yet. That was probably a good thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, it was. Yes, and I met her shortly after that. Oh, this is the greatest thing of, of all. T- so you, so you, you came. What was your first impression of of Cottage Grove? I mean, to me, it must have been. I mean, it was a little bit different than any. You know, you had been kind of an urban urban cat up to that point, really. Yeah, I, I'd say I'd call it podunk. Pod- what? You call it podunk? <laughs> but it, it has developed into a marvelous little city now. But when we were there, oh, the police would come out and look at our land and make sure we weren't doing anything. And we had undercover police coming out. And yeah, they were, they were serious because we were the hippies in the neighborhood. This is so remarkable. We were were five miles from the town. (laughs) Let let me ask you something, just just for my own, like, uh, you know, at 42 years old, it's just so important for my generation and younger generations, my daughters, to understand how innocent. And, you know, yeah, there was debauchery, but it wasn't like, I don't know, man, like there was no, people weren't getting... Um, there was nothing, I mean, criminals, it's a fine line, but I mean, what, what was it that was really amping up? Like the, the, the the local police were like, these cats are just smoking a lot of weed. I mean, what were they worried about exactly? I'm sure that's, that's what they suspected. Right. Doing something that, uh, they, they just didn't, they didn't have anything to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, because you know, at that time, I mean, what's amazing is that like I mean, like I guess marijuana was still like an incredibly um, <clears throat> uh, criminalized drug at that time. But, yes. But yet, if you were pulled over for being for alcohol, there was no crime for DUI at that time. Nothing. No. I mean, they just be like, "Go get home safe," or "We'll drive you home." I mean, it was that, that for my generation. That's remarkable. And I just you know when you you felt. Did you feel that was the first time in your life that you had found your people when you got out there? Had you ever? Uh, well, yeah. After after reading the electric Kool Aid acid test, I knew who my people were. <laughs> <laughs> I love this dude. And, and then it's just a matter of connecting up with them, you know. And it was a, a very slow process. Uh, I'm not pushy, and uh, Ken is very wary of who he takes into his collective uh, and I understand that so he was always very gentle and, and nice to me I can't say enough nice things about Ken although he could be an absolute terror when he wanted to be uh, and just could scare the living crap out of you really well he he at at one point he had diabetes and when we were doing the hoo-hahs uh, he didn't know he had diabetes, and so he had a couple incidences where his blood sugar dropped so low, and he went off into tirades about the band wasn't doing it right or what you know, and no one knew knew what was going on. And then pretty soon he went, oh, he's got diabetes. Ah, that's what's causing these mood swings. Right. And then then everything was fine. It it went away because they handled the problem. When you so uh, let's just be clear, Philip Dietz, graduate of uh, 
what 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 what, what acting the school? Ameri- the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Nineteen sixty. Yeah. Um. So, and then you recognize that when Wolf's book came out, <clears throat> that that those were your people. So, can you talk That's about? The collective. This is this is really the interest for me. Can you talk about the LSD was 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 legal uh, in the early '60s. It was government produced. Um, it was about as pure as you could possibly get. So, can you talk about your psychedelic experiences on the East Coast? I mean, Alpert, Richard Alpert, and uh, you know, otherwise known as Ramdas and Tim Leary had that April experiment in '64 at Boston University, where they gave ten cats a placebo cocktail, and they gave the other ten cats this god drug of acid, and and uh, you know, so there's a lot going on, and obviously, you had been tripping out before you read Tom Wolfe's book. So, can you talk about uh, a multi-dimensional experience that you had early on on LSD? No, because I never had any. I didn't take LSD. Well, the first drug I ever took was mescaline in Yosemite, mm-hmm. and um, that was in the mid-60s, probably. And then I didn't take LSD until I was in Hollywood, and that had to be around eight, 67. I'm really big on times. Oh, it's fine. But so, I mean, how did you... Tell me about the... Ad- and and, and yeah. can you imagine taking acid in... In Hollywood, it sounds like an absolute. Well, it sounds like a, it sounds like a bad trip already. Really. <laughs> yeah, it, of course it didn't turn out to be. It, you know, it's acid. Well, if you get the right dose and you're in the good frame of mind with the right people, you're gonna. Have, it doesn't matter where you are, man. That's right. Yeah. The Beatles were doing. Here comes the sun. Oh yeah, there you go. Then you know every. <laughs> so so tell me about the. I mean, for those who are listening and maybe. Um, not totally hip to the electric Kool-Aid. What acid test? What was in, what was ex, what made you feel aligned with those kinds of cats? Oh, that they were going out and just throwing parties with uh, with lighting and uh, shows, and uh, you just go, oh, yeah, that's where it's at. And they're doing something. They're not just sitting around watching things. They're actively doing something. They're actively doing stuff. So that was, yeah. yes. And, and, and that's what Twister was all about, is getting people off their ass and and participating. And, and when you had 300 people participating, it's a great thing, you know? It, it's a collective. Absolutely. No, I, can you, yeah, this, this is important. Can you talk about it? Because sometimes you walk in, to a, you know, as if you're if you're somebody who's you know, a proactive. If you're acting and you're trying to um, inspire uh, regular cats to get involved, it can be a challenge in a big way because a lot of people are not extroverted or they're not in great shape. Uh, and that's, I mean, can you talk about the the skills that it t- it takes leadership wise, whether it was from you or Keezy or whatever about you know, witnessing uh, a collective that was kind of morose or moribund to start, and by the end of the gig, it was frenzied. I mean, to me, that was, to me, it's about inspiration. This is, my whole show was about that. But in order to do that, you have to get people out of their, out of their thinking mind. 
Right. Is we there, have a, a marvelous incident at one of college shows. There was some guy in the back of the room who kept yelling out things kind of toward the end of the show. And Ken recognized that he wanted to participate. And he took, said, come on down, man. Come on up on the stage. <laughs> and he ushers him up on the stage. And once the guy got there, he found out he didn't have anything to say. <laughs> wow. But he was part of it. And that's all he wanted to be. He was on stage with the pranksters. Whoa. He was mind blown. That's all he wanted. And Ken just helped him. And he recognized that. You know, like it was nice. That's what was nice about that show is, you know, you recognize what was going on and you participated. When you, so you, the, the, you, you remember the, was that the first time you, what was the first time you actually met him? Was it when you went to the farm to, to, to meet him or when did you first? Oh, he, when he came to the creamery, he would come by the creamery. Oh, once, twice a week. And and can you talk a little bit about? I mean, because I think Chuck also. I mean, he he is so. I, I've been looking, trying to. Try, I, I had a great opportunity to be with him at the Christmas party last year. And but you know, he he he's. This is not his comfort zone. Is to you know, he's not a big talker. But dear Dick said, ah. dear Dick said that he, keys Chuck was as big a prankster as anybody else. Yes, 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 he was. <laughs> he was there the whole time. And uh, you have to remember that. Ken, when he brought these drugs home, who'd he take them to? He took them to his brother. <laughs> well, you know, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so he so took, so I mean, yeah. Chuck was, Chuck was dosing, I mean, Chuck was tripping out at the creamery quite a bit. I mean, is oh, that? Oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 no. I, no, um, we, Ellis, hmm, how to put this, Chuck, Chuck, may have microdosed himself occasionally right but he wasn't going around getting dosed unless you had a major party going on you know when the grateful dead played well yeah then he went to his dropper bottle <laughs> dude you are the this is the greatest story i've ever heard in my life i mean um but you were not uh, uh you you tripped out in in hollywood um but you were kind of more like, I mean, setting the drugs aside, you were like, I want to be at a proactive commune, commune type area where people are doing stuff. It, 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 is that, is that fair to say like that, that was your sort of your mantra? Sure. Yes, it was. And so, um, and what, let me ask you, this is, this just keeps popping into my head. Talk about pre, pre method acting. <laughs> that to me sounds like why you got into acting. I mean, that's and can you talk about how fluid it was and how loot because that's what the brilliance of when music wasn't codified into these curriculums and languages. You can't teach this stuff in the academy. And the same thing is with acting. I mean, pre method acting for Philip Deeds, like what did that look like? How was it different than, you know, the whatever me method acting is? Well, okay. Um... Pre-method pre is more of a rote. You, you learn the lines, you learn your moves. Where method is you're using the emotion and letting the emotion play the scene. Um, 
I don't know whether I can be any more clear than that. Well, it's, I mean, did you actually were you, were you able to apply that early on in your career pre before? No, no, no. I mean, later on in my career, yes, but that's that's a difficult one to get to to know because uh, you're you're transforming yourself into someone else, and you're allowing that to happen. It's kind of a sacred thing between you and the character. Mm. Um, and the, the character then is allowed to play. And you as an actor don't do anything. The character takes over and plays. And the character listens. And the character talks. It's not you listening. It's the character hears things differently. The character hears what you're saying as the character hears not just use the actor on stage. It's all very unclear, Jake. Well, that's <laughs> going to take me a while to, fit, to get my head around that. I, I mean, did, did, were you, I mean, I can't see you, you, were you part of the, I mean, I can't think of a better place to be than New York City in the, in this, in the early part of the 1960s. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the amount of music and art that was being created there new stuff was incredible i mean did you go were you going to the gaslight to see hugh romney i mean did you go where where were you what were you doing culturally at that time i don't think you were sitting in your dorm room uh no but you have to remember i was very poor right um, but the cost of living was very very little then <laughs> yeah. yeah but when you're when you're an acting student. Right, when you're an acting student, you're really poor. I get it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so you don't really get out much, and you don't get to explore the the places where you have to pay money. Right, so you were, um, you felt like, um, can you talk about, uh, I, I think for me, doing my show, and, you know, I appreciate how, you know, you're hip to it and, and you support it, but I, you know, for me, success is, is, uh, only based on individual voice, singularity, uniqueness, and cutting above the morass of everybody else doing what, essentially what your trade or craft is. Can you talk about how over the years, and, and when you got to a point when you felt like you discovered your own individual voice in, in acting, like what, what allowed you to cut through the morass? <laughs> Twister allowed me to cut through. So let's just let me go through that. Let me explain that. Working with Ken. Well, there's there's there was never any pressure um, in Twister. Uh, You you had a great deal of fun, and there was a if mistakes were made, they didn't matter. You just went on. Um, I don't know. Some of this is. I'm, I'm drifting away from what your question was. No, you're not. You're just ri- – no, the, the point is that you would go in with a – when stuff like that was was uh, right from the get-go. It's like mus- musicians, too. In today's world, we have all this technology to, to make everything perfect. A lot of people take that on the bandstand, and they try to be perfect. But that's not – what they don't realize is that mistakes, gaffes, can be gateways to expansion of vocabulary – and the audience ain't going to know anyway if you made a mistake or not. <laughs> That's exactly right. right. I mean, that, is that what can you? Is, that was the so so Ken's 
he, he had such an unorthodox but authentic style uh, that that must have been uh, liberating for you. Now, I, I mean, I, I throw on The Wizard of Oz for my younger daughter on record still, and, and you know, but was were these characters the conventional characters? Were you, like, sitting around with Walker and Babs reading reading scripts? I mean, how did this... How did, how did it all work? Yeah, it was a, the script was, <laughs> the script was almost completed when we started rehearsal. And we rehearsed for a couple of weeks in, in the bus barn. And uh, the bus barn, at, yes. Yeah, where, where the bus was kept. And uh, pretty soon <laughs> they finally finished it because we, we, we were calling from so well the we're ready, we're ready, where's the rest of the script? So they finally finished up the script, and uh, I forget where I'm going with that. Uh, well, this is, this is um, like, let's see, they had, cam- I'm reading this from Izzy, um, <clears throat> and I want you to riff on this. He said, they had canceled a Grateful Dead appearance here in Eugene, so Kesey held a session out at the farm. Phil Dietz was a friend of mine at the time, and he was a close compadre of Kesey's. Dietz was part of the Springfield Creamery crowd. That's how I wound up going there. There was a lot going on there. It was a mecca for a certain kind of people. After that, Kesey did a show called Twister, and I got involved with that in 94. Years earlier, I had, monks, I had a monk's robe made with uh, the cowl, and I used that in the show. Yeah. Kesey had me out front. I was wonder, wandering around the audience with a lantern, looking into people's faces. Uh, I was searching for the honest truth. What? So, I mean, what was your, as as the Scarecrow, uh, we know him in the film. Uh, he doesn't have a, what is it, a heart? What, what is he lacking in, in the, how was the correlation to the Scarecrow in, in Twister? As uh, he, he didn't have a brain. Thank you. He didn't have a brain. Right, and so in in Ken's on Twister, Ken educated him, and he became a professor, and so he he had a brain and he was smart. And uh, was the idea that like um, that you that like the scarecrow always ha- always had the brain? He just needed somebody to work with him at it to get him to to get it to work. Um, no, I think he needed a brain. He needed a brain. Yeah, that's right. He was he he was made out of claw uh, straw. That's right. Uh, you're, no, thank you. The Tin Man needed the heart. No, the lion needed the lion needed courage. Well, but there was no lion. There was um, there was Babs who was playing a Frankenstein. <laughs> who? So we're, we're, uh, we're well. I. I yeah. <laughs> Well, he didn't want to copy it exactly. Of course. No, I mean, those early, when you went to him and said, I want to be part of the troupe, and then he called you back, can you talk about the rehearsals? What, I mean, because I remember acting in school, and they were pretty tedious, and I don't, I would assume that Kesey's rehearsals were not, were, were what was that like? Were you, was there a huge <laughs> amount of lines to learn, or were you guys just sort of, just, Kicking it around. I mean, I did, this is where this is where the rubber meets the road for my show, man. Well, uh, yeah, there I, there weren't a heck of a lot of lines. It was pretty evenly split up between the Scarecrow and Tin Man and Frankenstein and, of course, the Wizard, Ken. And uh, 
So we all had a, a fair amount to say. And, um, um, um. <laughs> okay, I'm getting to the um, um, um stage here. No, you're. I think you're doing. Fa- were you? Were you? Were you playing? Uh, I mean, Walker had the saxophone, and Babs was had the trombone. Were, was there a musical? Were you a mus- musical partner in this whole thing? Yes. Yeah. I I sang. I had a couple of songs. Is there a chance you could sing one right now? You see, here in Oz, we've got a name for the, let's see, for the wind's destructive powers. Unlike the trees known by their name, it's known by what it devours. Some call it void with vacancy, some call it deprivation, but folks way down in Emerald Town, they call the wind starvation. Starvation, starvation, they call the wind starvation. That was some oh, wind. my dude, are you kidding me? The day after Thanksgiving 2020. Thank you, Philip Dietz, man. Wait, are you, so, you, no, okay, so, so. You know, I, I know half the line still. I, I'm once, sorry, but that is, wait, so, so I just want to be clear. Going through these unorthodox things, I mean, we're, we're, not only did Kesey, he didn't care if you made mistakes, just move on and keep burning, but was how much creative control, was that a song you riffed? On? Did you make up that, or was the entire script written? No, by... no, no, Ken wrote that. Brilliant. So then you yeah. delivered it. What were some yeah. of the, yeah, I mean, what was, what, like, I mean, this might be self-explanatory, um, but it wasn't like, you know, you were, uh, I mean... You know, you weren't like, uh, you know, <clears throat> you really weren't um, a hippie, uh, you know, music head cat. Like you were, what was it about? Was, How did you get hip if you didn't? So when you went to his farm, when you initially said, I want to be part of the troop, <laughs> what was so intriguing? What did you, what was, was it just like a magnet pulling you towards that thing? I'm just trying to figure out. Why was so? Int- why you wanted to be part of it? You know, I mean, what was it? Because you didn't know anybody. You didn't know Babs at that time. You didn't know anybody. You didn't know Walker. You know, you had read this. You had read a book about the acid tests, and um, you know, uh, it's hard for me to always. I always kind of get confused about when. I guess Cuckoo's Nest was written in '65, but it didn't hit the screen till '75. Um, and then, you know, sometimes a great notion. There was all this stuff floating around, but then there's. You know, I'm just, I'm, you would say that it's at a certain point, did, did you start working at the creamery before you knew Ken? Did you get to know Chuck closer? Were you closer with them before? Yes. You... Yeah. Yeah. I know. I started working at the, after my wife, I started working there and then I started working there and got to know uh, Chuck and Sue very, very well, sleeping on their living room floor. Oh, this thing. is so, I would have been sleeping right there along. I mean, that is so beautiful, man. <laughs> They were just like Arkansans, right? They were from Arkansas? Like, the family was from Arkansas, right? Well, well the the original family, Grandma, was from Arkansas. Grandma was from Arkansas. So how much... So when you got there, like, what did... Was that was that Grandma? Did you ever get to meet that Grandma? Or did you yeah, get... yeah, Grandma Smith. Uh, she was a lovely lady, but she was uh, in the latter stages of Alzheimer's about that point. And... Uh, they would find her wandering around occasionally, and yeah. <laughs> in the in the in the cream. What did the cream? So that, but if I remember correctly, 
you know, it was sort of mythological, but then it got demystified because, you know, by 67, those cats, I mean, you were tripping out in Hollywood, but that's when Babs and, and Keezy crawled under the concrete and got the heck out of San Francisco. But I just <clears throat> assumed that Keezy bought that proper, that land, but no, that was his family's land. That was already their, their land. And it, it, is that right? I think Chuck actually was the first one to buy it. That's what I think. So Chuck, or it was, <clears throat> yeah, so I'm trying to trace back. Like, so Grandma Smith was was from one side of the family. Um, I guess what was what was when you first started? What was your job there? I mean, Dear Dick was telling me these harrowing stories about showing up with you know tractor trailers and having to like. I mean, him and him and Chuck did some amazing work uh, getting stuff back to the the creamery. Were you part of the, you know, sort of the assembly lines? What were you saying? What were you doing at the creamery? Well, I I started off washing buckets. I love it. I freaking love this. You were washing. You got off the floor in the morning. Was there coffee or I mean, how would you start the day? Well, uh, by washing cream cans. (laughs) <laughs> you're gonna have some sustenance you gotta get some food and you i mean like i just am trying to figure out like when you would get up chuck would be getting the milk and the cows like what what was the kind of routine like oh no okay um the the milk was delivered to the creamery in a tanker right we could store up to 1500 gallons of milk so that would be delivered, and then I would take and process it. I'd put powdered milk in it, run it through the pasteurizer and uh, homogenizer, and then somebody else would package it. Well, when I first started, I was the packager and working until 4 o'clock in the morning packaging yogurt. And then finally, I, I said, mm, and uh, got to the position where I could control things and make it run on a little more even keel i dig so so <clears throat> what was the turning po- like ob- obviously there was the concert but to, to help the creamery which was in not in good financial shape but then <clears throat> just educate me as to how nancy's yogurt became an, an international uh, brand, you know, branding was not. In fact, it was so unhip back then. It was the, the last. I mean, even musicians. If you said, if you said, hey, if you went up to a cat, you know, and said, "Hey, man, you sounded great. You sounded just like so and so," they'd want to slit their wrists. Everybody wanted to be different. Branding was not cool. It was very local. But when did Nancy's get to this point where here in Tucson I can go and it's in every grocery store, every health food market, and it is everywhere. But that's not what it was like in 72. Right. So when, when I first started working there, uh, Black Maria was making the yogurt. Now, who's that? Uh, oh, yeah. I kind of remember Black, Mar- Black Maria. That was her name? Yeah. Well, that was a prankster name. <laughs> Carolyn Hannah. I love this. Okay. Black Maria. Right. Was making the yogurt. And I had just come back from Europe course right and uh, had tasted the Greek yogurt which was straight yogurt no sugar no nothing if you wanted sugar you put on sugar afterwards right so it, 
when Marie was making it, she was putting in 10 gallons of honey to like 100 gallons of yogurt. And to me, I went, oh, my God, this is dreadful. <laughs> so I, I, I talked to Sue, and I said, Sue, could, could I cut back on this honey a little bit? She said, yeah, go ahead and try. So I start off first using half the amount of honey and then cut it back to like a quarter, and it brought it into line with European yogurt, taste-wise. And it pretty well started taking off after. No, nobody knew what the hell yogurt tasted like here when the cream was Yeah, making. but exactly. It was so unsophisticated. They didn't know what they <laughs> we were... Had, you had play and, and something else, which, of course, was all sugar. You know? Oh. And so the creamery came out with a really a nice product that uh, that wasn't the sugary thing. And and you and and you were getting like you were on salary or like at that point or were you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is the great. I cannot. So eventually, did you get a? a did you like you were sleeping on the floor? But... Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> once you got that, once you hipped Black Maria to the honey thing, you maybe you got a raise or something. I don't know. No, no. no. The creamery was so poor that. In order to get packaging to put the yogurt into, Jan and I would leave our salaries with the creamery. Wow. So they didn't have to pay us. And we would just take what we needed to survive for that period of time. Of course, it all came back later, but that's what you know we needed to do to survive. So that's let's talk about that because I think it's really a beautiful concept in this time of I mean, even the Pope came out yesterday and said, stop the self, 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 yeah. selfishness. I mean, the hoarding and the insane greed is, yeah. I mean, the two cats that we miss the most from a uh, culturally pejorative point of view is Kesey and Hunter S. Thompson right now. Yeah, It's just ridiculous. And so I'm venturing to say no contracts were ever signed. There were no real lawyers and things like that so basically when nancy's exploded as a full-blown chain or that's when you were able to i mean how was it all i mean you reap the benefits of that in your own way well yeah of course you know the more money they made then more more they could pass on Right, but I mean, like it was more just like a it was more just through trust, right? I mean, it wasn't like there were contracts. I mean, you, here you are, no. your your wife and you. Was no, there no, it's all it's all shake hands. This type is thing. so cool, man! Like that to me is why you love that 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 commune over. I mean, that is what it was about. Blood is thicker than water. I mean, you must, it must have felt like. <clears throat> do, do you, um, you know, a guy who's just been just impossible to track down and and you know i obviously he's I, he's a legend but uh, doesn't talk a lot um uh, have you have you, uh, did you did you cross paths with mike hagan yeah sure so what, what was as a i mean everybody had their own roles i mean yeah babs yeah, yeah. yeah what was because I, I mean you know walker is a funny guy and a and a, and a jokes you know and, and and he's got humor and he's really bright and he can speak well. He can obviously act well. He, you know, he's not the best musician or any by any means, but you know, <laughs> Babs was a you know straight out just like you know played hoops again. Oscar Robertson took him to the woodshed a few times in Miami, Ohio. Also went to Vietnam. 
Uh, Kesey, obviously, we, we've been chronicling his path. Dietz, you had your path. What what was Hagen's contribution uh, to that whole scene? I mean, aside from, you know, the whole old joke of him, you know, basically, you know, the camera got screwed up on the on the original bus trip. But beyond that, what was how was he part of the milieu? Well, they they went to college together. Keezing him, keezing him. Yeah, yeah. And and Hagen has this remarkable ability to shake things off particularly negative things. I love this. And Ken tells the story about Hagen through this party. It was going to be a gambling party, <laughs> and he would provide drinks and all of the games, and he would front the money, and, of course, he lost everything. <laughs> Everybody won but him. And Ken said, I went back the next morning, and he said, here was Hagen sleeping on the floor. And he said, I woke him up and he said, he jumped up and started dancing and said, well, sometimes you win, you lose a little. And he said, that's who he was. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Whoa, he's a, he's, man. That's he's fucking a, cool. He's a, he's a remarkable guy and you never talked to him, did you? No, you know, he's yeah. he, the, the, the old line is, oh, he doesn't talk to anybody. But, I mean, that's what, I mean, Jake Feinberg, it just, I, that's fine. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But I know he was, he must have been a loyal. Uh, and so he really was the first out of all the original pranksters. He was the one that Kesey met first in college. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cause well, then, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think George was in college at the same time yeah i'm trying to think about how walker actually came on the scene because babs they met at stanford um i was walker at perry lane i think walker was living in berkeley at at a certain period and then he wound up at perry lane which was when you were on the other side of the country in new york at that time yeah um i mean what what was um uh you know, this guy's been in my heart, and I don't know why, because I've never met any of these cats. And, I mean, I, I, the only guys I know are Walker and Babs, and that's just in the last couple of years. But do you remember um, what, like, did when, when Jed Kesey passed away, do you remember um, what happened after that with, with Ken? I mean, it took him a while to get out of it. I feel like there were there opportunities for you to – uh, support him, uh, you know, and, and you know, basically because I, I don't know, I was, you know, reading about Ken's passing, and you know, he he passed away in his sleep, and you know, and I, I just wonder um, if you can talk about. Everyone's always talking about great Ken Kesey stories, but everyone's fallible, and everyone takes a blow, and and you know that thing with Jed. I remember when I interviewed Zane. You know, Jed was the superstar kid of the family. He was yeah, the best athlete, yeah. and 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 you know, he wasn't a show off. It's just he was super talented cat. And then Zane, yeah, and he was he yeah. was really a neat neat kid. Yeah, he was just a lovely lovely young man. Uh, it was a real tragedy when that happened, and um, you know, you try to hunker down around Ken, but he. Uh, he pretty much takes it all on himself. That's what I was. That's really what I was trying to get through in that Mishigash There is that you you would try. He really, you could not. He didn't want the. He took it on himself. He didn't necessarily want somebody. Maybe not outside of Faye or whatever. But I mean, he didn't. He did not want other people trying to 
help him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so you you continue at the creamery, and at a certain point, you and Jan, your wife's name is Jan, is that right? Yes. So you guys were just taking what you needed to survive. Um, you modified the honey, and then, I mean, all of a sudden, did were you able to... I mean, was the acting, I, I'm, I'm trying to envision Eugene in 73 or thereabouts, and what were the venues, outside of, like, the parties at the barn, what were the venues that, I mean, you're, at, what well, were the there, 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 there were two theater troops going on oh. here, uh, and one started and then evolved into another one, and I'd been, uh, I'd been working with the local people. And then I kind of branched out because I wanted to direct. And I teamed up with a, a local playwright and then another uh, theater director. And we started our own theater and produced about five or six original shows. Well, can we get some names here? I mean, you don't, don't leave me hanging here. Who was the original troops? And then I need to know these original shows you produced. And, where, and, where, and, oh. what, and what were the venues that were, were welcoming to this avant-garde theater? Uh, let's see. They were small taverns. Oh, I love it. They were taverns. Yeah. So they were bars. Yes. This and, is uh, this is so a out train of ran, a train ran by one of them. So <laughs> when you were doing the show, you see the actors pause for about four minutes while the train. It's like we're taking a quick break here. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> would they just like hold, freeze frame themselves? They get frozen in place for that, four minutes. Kind of, yeah. Oh my god! Wait, I mean, so but I mean, it, I mean, in all fairness, I mean, a, a bar can be. I mean, it's hard enough sometimes when you're there to have a spiritual discharge with music, and it's a tavern, and people are ta- not there to, for the music, and they're talking over it. I mean, there was the, the you were able to get the, the the volume to a din, like to a point where it was you could get your point across. I mean, it would seem like it could get a little out of control. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. We we also had a, a major, the Holt Center, which is a, a yeah. But that didn't come along till eighty three, eighty two. Yeah. That was, you know, that was that that and that place. Don't even get me started on that. How insane, how beautiful that was. Who was? Were you? I think that's what Izzy was saying. You're the one that raised all the money for that place. No, 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 no. No. Yeah, it had to be somebody else. Okay, I'm going to look that up. I, I well, I mean. <laughs> <clears throat> so basically, um, I want to. What are the names of the theater troops and your? And what I'm hearing is that the Kesey Collective was not either one of those troops. No, no, they weren't. No. Um, Ken was doing his own readings and things like that. Uh, Trick of the Squirrel that he had to work with Arzini. Right, right. Oh no, I, dude, you know who this cat was? This is who I wanted. Ed Ragazzino. Ed Ragazzino. That's yeah. the cat who. So, was Ed part of these original troops, or who was in those? No, no. Ed was at Lane Community College. <laughs> oh, he's at Lane CC. Okay, so, so, um, so you were you got involved with these these troops, um, and what kind of like what kind of roles were you playing with these troops in the seven in the early seventies? Oh well, um, Noel Coward. Uh, See, I did Dracula. It was one of my favorites. Wow. Yeah. Is there fun. any footage of this? We need footage of this stuff. Uh, no, no, no. No audio, no video, nothing. It was never. No, there, there okay. is a radio play that Babs wrote 
that exist. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Where is it? Uh, let's see. And do we know the name of it? Uh, yeah, you will in a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. There was a ra- Babs wrote a radio play. Yeah. Oh, my. And, and we recorded it uh, at our local theater. We just met one afternoon. I organized all the actors, and we just went in and did a cold reading of it. And Babs taped it and edited it. It was that, and it turned out to be pretty good. And, and as a matter of fact, I got a compliment from Ken on that. Uh, they, he and Babs were listening to the show going to the coast, and Kesey said, "Well, who the hell's that?" And he said, "That's he's reading that pretty well." That's <laughs> <laughs> Phil. That's oh, okay. Phil, man. That's so. <laughs> what's the dude? Get me the name. Can you get me? We got a name on it. On, on what? On the on the, oh, ra- uh, on the radio play. It's called Unwritten History. Joaquin oh, Miller. Who's that? Uh, he was a local uh, writer. Can you just talk about the concept of? I feel like so much of my program uh, is about improvisation, but also like <laughs> basically like I mean again I I was relentless in, in in hounding you to come on the program, but at the same time, there's something magical about creating something out of nothing. And <laughs> Kesey was a magician. Would you say that he... There are, there are younger cats who were privy to him doing his quote-unquote readings at the university, probably checking out all the beautiful women there. But, I mean, really, I mean, he... People said he could hypnotize you. Was he a hypnotist? Yes, yeah, he, he was. I'm not sure how really good he was at it, but now how do you, and now why why would what he was you, a vent, yeah. ventriloquist too? He was, yeah, yeah. Oh my! God. I mean, you could see his lips move a little, but he was, no. I mean, obviously, he wasn't like you know like job. Yeah, it does. It, it, he did. So you, what was the first time you witnessed him? Because I mean, that's the magic of Keezy's that through his storytelling, it was non-hypnotic hypnotism. Like he he would tell stories and he would could enrapture. A completely LSD-induced, LSD-laden group. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a story? I mean, because like you know, people like was there a time when it really, really dawned on you early on before you really knew him when you saw him take control of an audience and own the entire room? Uh, yeah, but uh, I'll relate this story. Yeah, go ahead. One day at at the farm some Sunday afternoon, the usual 30, 35 people were there with their kids. <laughs> oh my and, God, I love it. And Ken got the kids and he said, oh, he said, come over to this hole over here and I want you to listen and see what you hear. And when you put your ear down to the hole, you would hear, what the hell? Ken goes, yeah, that's that's the woozle. And he said, you have to be careful. He said, that woozle almost bit me one time. And he said, maybe we can get him to come down to the end of the hole and you can see him. And he said, maybe I can grab him. And so all the kids are going, run, 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 come on, run, come on down, woozle. And Ken suddenly sticks his hand up this pipe and goes, oh, oh my God, I got it. Oh, no, 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 it's got me. And his legs are flailing in in the air and his arms are flailing and he finally rips this arm out of the 
pipe and off flying out of his hair is a little piece of fur. And it looked to be white, but you couldn't really tell. And that's how he entertained the kids. And he just was just the best makeup storyteller in the world. And the woozle, by the way, was uh, was Roy Seaburn at the other end of the pipe, which was about 50 feet away. I cannot believe you just dropped yeah. Seaburn's name. I, that, that is so... So they, he was just sort of humming through the other end of the pipe, making those exactly, noises. Exactly, yeah, making all these moves. And he duped all the kids. <clears throat> now, yes, yeah. yeah, I mean... Yeah, he, he duped me. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah, I mean, I they, you know, it was just like... so minimalist and yet so brilliant. It's unbelievable. Were you, I, I mean, like, uh, our, going back to Arzenia, uh, the, uh, the, the embellisher, uh, the exaggerator, uh, he... He said that Owsley Stanley was on the scene when he got out there. Um, did you run into Owsley once in a while? Uh, only one time. Only uh, one time. Yeah, and I forget what the concert was, but he showed up, and he came out to the creamery, and Ken was out there, and and, and Owsley goes, "Hey, Ken, look at this!" And he makes big muscle on his arm. <laughs> I'm like, "What?" Okay. Yeah, right. So were were you the uh generally speaking the the concerts that you would attend were at were they at Outson Stadium, MacArthur Court? Where were you going to see uh like when the dead would come to town, where would you go? Well, they performed in Venita a couple of times. They did, you're right about that. Right. And then, then they were at Autzen Stadium. In fact, they, they attended the first Twister show after they did a concert. I, wait, 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 what was it? And, and Huey Lewis played Elvis in that show. Oh, my. <laughs> wait, wait. <clears throat> Huey okay. was part of, you're right, Huey, how was Huey, Huey's stepdad was a big beatnik in New York. How did he, he was in your acting troupe there? No, 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 no. He, he came to perform with the dead. He did. I think. And he did. Because we didn't, we didn't, well, actually, we were at the show, but uh, geez, I don't remember why you. Anyway, he, he was there, and Ken said, well, here, we want you to play Elvis. And, and so, so in the first show, uh, he played Elvis. What, what was, the Twister, I always, it always seems to fluctuate with me because, um, I mean, when did it actually start? Seventy-three or or the nineties or, or when? When did it? Because I mean, because Huey was uh, was not on the map in I think. I mean, I'm, when I think about the seventies in Oregon, <clears throat> like the Vanita the Vanita show in seventy-two, that was outdoors. There's a tape of that. I mean, there's video of that. Um, and it was and then through the seventies, <clears throat> when the Dead would come back, they were playing the football stadium, and then. <clears throat> One year, uh, they played MacArthur Court, and then uh, eventually uh, wound up at the Holt Center for a couple of years. Amazing shows there. Um, but uh, when did tw- this? When did that Twister? Sh- the first ever Twister show was '93, maybe, or when was it? Um, let's see. 
the question is again well, yeah the question is i mean when you say huey played elvis that could not have possibly been in the 70s so i'm trying to get a date on on you said the first the first twister show uh the dead showed up for that i'm just trying to figure out what year that was jan do you have remember when the first twister show was that we did at Autzen? It's coming. It's fine. Ninety. Nine. Yeah. That. That. That's. That sounds exactly right. Because they played out in ninety. So that. But. But I mean that. There's no way that you were out there in seventy two. That. There's no way that it, that, that was the first show. I mean, that, that was the first, maybe, maybe the biggest show ever, or I don't know. I mean, there's you guys were doing it before that. Say, say that again? Well, <clears throat> what I'm trying to get at just chronologically is that what I'm hearing is that there were uh, there were some troops around. What, what was the year? I mean, you were you were at the Creamery early 70s. When was the, the first time that you started to collaborate with Keezy, obviously way, well before 90. Oh, yeah. Um, collaborate. Hmm. Well, how, how, how long did you, were you employed, how long were you employed at the creamery? Um, 20 years, I guess. Okay, I so that's, so you, through the 70s, you were primarily you were primarily working at the creamery and then acting in these different uh, troops um, in in the Eugene area. But you also, at that point in the seventies, also knew you were uh, you had, you obviously had met Keezy. But when you first started, do you remember the year you went and said, "I want to be part of this group"? Was when was that? <laughs> no when he contemplated it didn't say anything and then a couple weeks later you were there was that in the when was that we met everyone on the 4th of july in 1972 everyone because he went to the party right oh jan welcome to the dance it's so great to have you on i mean so that was 72 but then when was like i'm saying the first collaborative effort that's 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 18 years before the quote-unquote twister show at Alton Stadium. So what what was the first collaboration with you and and and, and Ken? It, it would have been, it was after you quit drinking, because that was 83. Wow. And so, and then it was like a year after that. So 84. Wow. Holy cow. So were you doing squir- little uh, Trick or the Squirrel meets Double the Bear? What, 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 what was that collaboration? No, no, that was our zenia. And that was that was the old Wiley uh, with Schuster. You know Schuster. Yeah. Schuster, yes. Uh, freaking genius and Art Maddox. These guys are salt of the earth, like you, man. You guys you are. Know, Art, yeah. Art, Art just died, dude. Yeah, about a, a two uh, month ago, maybe. You know, man. I'm so. He he he. You know, my second book was written about. Uh, part of it was focused on. The Merry Pranksters and all their side projects, and and he's in the book, and I and I struggled to connect with him, and I was I, I had a feeling he was not doing well, health wise, and I'm so ho- sorry to hear that, man. Yeah, I I had to track him down because I hadn't heard from him in so long, and I said I started searching for him, and 
uh, Black Maria started looking for him too. And we finally we got to his family back east. And he said, "Oh no, he's been in a nursing home." And then about a month after that, he was gone. I'm going to send you those interviews. I'm going to put those up today in honor of Art Matt. Did you collaborate? Because that was like Mason Williams' time for Keezy. You know, like Mason would go out there and. Yeah, you know there was a parrot chewing bark off the side of the of the ran- of the farm. I mean, Maze Rumiaka. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had an. So I mean, where I'm just trying to get the the deets the the like that '84 period. What were do you remember? What you guys were working on at that time? Mm. No, I'd have to call Jan back in. It's fine. It's fine. You know, I. Uh, She's my memory. Yeah, she's great. You're you're doing great, man. We've been cooking here for for an hour twenty. I mean, I, I just a couple. I want to just run through the four L's of my show, and then uh, we can put a wrap on set one here with Philip Dietz. Happy Thanksgiving to you, by the way, my man. Yeah, um, so one of my one of the L's on my show is leadership, and I kind of wanted you to talk about um, the leadership qualities that you think are most important in humanity and society today and what you know could be i don't don't want to just say what were the great leadership qualities about ken kesey because i see chuck kesey and i see ken babs and i see philip dietz and i see all these amazing leaders and you were all around these cats and you know i wonder what i couldn't think to ask a better person at this time when quote unquote the leaders we have are about as uh Unleaderly, unleader-like as possible. Uh, what what are the qualities that you believe need to come to the forefront for real leadership to to come back to the forefront? Truthfulness. <laughs> Pretty simple. Being truthful. Yeah. You think the pranksters were truthful? I mean, I mean, I, I'm just going back to your group. I mean, they they had they weren't particularly monogamous people. <clears throat> they, no. no, I mean, we're, I mean, when you say truthful, just like not living in an alternative reality. I mean, again, some people would say Keezy was in his own universe, but that's what made him so freaking brilliant. But at the same time, you're, I mean, I go back to that whole creamery thing. It's, it's handshakes, trust, and commitment and honoring of that word. But what does truth mean, truthfulness mean to, to you? Um, well, it, for me, it's just that you're really telling it the way it is, not adding your own spin on things. Ken, Ken always said, I only lie to my friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, so he was, and he was his honest self. I, I mean, on the stage, just in your experience, what, like, especially in the heat of the moment, tension is high, not always, like, comfortable with don't necessarily trust everybody on the band on the stage to deliver the way they should or maybe somebody's not picking up their you know their own pulling their own weight what's the best leadership i mean miles i mean coltrane used to walk up to miles and say you know when he first joined him what what do you want me to play what do you want me to play and miles just kept turning his back on him and then train realized after a while oh he he just wants me to be myself but it took i mean that was non-verbal leadership i'm in the heat of the moment in acting, what are the what are the best forms of of leadership in your mind? Sorry to stretch you out here. No, uh, 
I'm saying, I'll say not breaking your character so that you don't interrupt the flow between actors and the communication. Um, it, it just honestly talking to each other. Or, or not, or, or, or are you saying worry, just do your job and don't get into other people's hair, even if they're flailing around or scuffling, don't lose sight of what your focus is and your character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it doesn't help. It doesn't help. I mean, it's just like a team in some ways, but, yeah. but, but, um, Oh, act, acting is really teamwork and it really truly is a lot of people don't really recognize well let me ask you then what how how can can you talk about an example in your career when people when cats on the stage weren't doing their job as part of the team how i mean sometimes musicians will say i just have to pick up the slack for other people and i'm going to let them know through the music that they're not pulling their own weight how did you work with that because it doesn't always it's not always seamless um I don't think I can answer that question. Oh, that's a perfect answer. Um, <clears throat> tell me about, in your mind, the lineage of the prankster movement and who were the people that Keezy, not writers, or maybe they were, maybe they were, I mean, who were people that he looked at from a prior age, generations, even ages before, that he was mo not necessarily modeling, he was doing his own thing, but who, what were the, what's the lineage of the pranksters? What was going on? Was it, was it, was it vaudeville? Uh, what, what, what was the, the, lin the predecessors in the lineage of the pranksters? Well, I think one of them would be Burroughs. And why? Maybe I shouldn't choose Burroughs. No, I've heard that thrown out there before. Uh, Hunter Thompson, of course. Just because he was so brilliant and unpredictable, or, or just, I mean, well, with words? Um, Ken, had, Ken had read the classics, too. You've got to... Okay. Um, I'll okay. Um, and um, even to this day, <clears throat> when you um, see these cats, Ma like Mountain Girl, did you ever cross paths with Mountain Girl? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I, I talk to her about once every two weeks. Just She's hiding out just like I am. Oh, you, you, know? you still talk to her once every couple weeks? Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, she is the hippest cat I have ever oh, yeah. Hey, your interview with her was really good, and I, I hope you go back. Well, I've been trying. She, I mean, they are they they are hiding out, man. No, but, I know. Did I you put in a good? Please, let, well, next time you talk to me, like Jake Feinberg's a good. I think you know. She, for me, for, I never saw any shows. I never. I mean, I came on the scene late. I'm just a rogue journalist. I think a lot of people are saying, "Who the hell is this person?" But yeah, you clearly got you. You heard that interview, and I could have gone on for hours with her. Yeah, she's yeah. phenomenal. Um, yeah, she, is. she was was she part of that 30 35 person contingent at the Keezy farm with her kids or or was she Oh, oh yeah, when when she was here, she you know, when she was around, she's there. Uh, 
all the time. I mean, what's the, you know, and people will say, she, yeah, go she ahead. Lived with Jerry, of course. And, you know, so yeah, but I mean, Garcia was. Gar- did you? Did you? I mean, Garcia would only really come up. Uh, uh, during the the, the, the tours, uh, or but he, I mean, he had several kids up there with Mountain Girl. So I mean, did he? How often was he up there? Uh, not very often. Yeah, uh, I, I assume you know? that. Yeah, when, you know, a lot of people will say, Phil, that like, like on this interview, we've been rocking away for ninety minutes, but you know, it's not the the, the old line is you'll never remember what, but what they said, but you remember how you felt. And I just think about Babs and Walker and these and and Hagen, Cassidy, who was gone before you were on the scene. Yeah. Keezy, yeah. Chuck, Deer Dick, all these people, Mountain Girl, and it goes on and on. Gretchen Fetch, all these people. Um, what's the feeling that you get when you think about these people? Not that I mean, I know you're part of it. It's just the beats. I mean, Wavy Gravy was a teenage beatnik. Bab says that the <laughs> pranksters came, fell in between the beats and the hippies. Um, that, that, that's right. What, what, what Ken says is uh, we fell in between, we fell into the crack in between. The crack, yes. Yeah, in, we fell into the crack in between the beatniks and the hippies. We were crackers. Oh, my God, that is so that, freaking That's great. his quote. Wait, is that Babs or, or Keezy? That's key. Oh, so let me ask you a question, Phil, because what were the beats and what were the, what made the pranksters different from the beats and different from the hippies? <laughs> <laughs> the crackers, as he said. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they were they trying to like 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 toe the line between obviously doing drugs like not hard. I mean, everything's changed in this country when, when hard drugs hit the market. Uh, I'm talking like LSD, marijuana. That's kind of the hippies. And then the Beats were a sophisticated group of writers and and musers and you know provocateurs. I mean, I, I don't want to even. I shouldn't have even given you that kind of fodder. But but I'm always searching for that, the nuance, because it's a bold statement to say we fell in between two iconic social groups. I mean, you know, the Beats and the hippies. So what made the pranksters unique from those two groups? LSD. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. I, mean, yeah. I, I, I was a beatnik for a very short period of time when I... I uh, love this. You, I knew you were, you were a beatnik in New York, weren't you? No, no, in St. Louis. Uh, in Saint, so what did that, were you wearing like slippers and a beer? Like what were you looking like? Well, you, um, boat neck uh, shirts. Oh, uh, my God. Drink uh, Chianti wine. Oh, man. Can you send me a picture of you from that time? I need that picture. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the bottom line. To, to, oh, and, uh, yeah. I saw Ferlin Getty came and performed in St. Louis. Um, the um, What's his famous one? Starts. Oh Johnny has a patch on his ass. Oh my! Johnny God. has a dog named Spot. Spot does not have a patch on his ass. Oh, <laughs> Coney Island of the mind. Coney Island of the mind. And that was the time when everyone would just use you click your fingernails for applause. You click your fingers. Oh my! Dude, see, this is so <laughs> hip, man. 
<laughs> this is so hip, Deets. So you were a hit, you were a beatnik uh, for a minute, and then and then you're just sort of a cottage grow. You're a creamery cat. I don't know. You're not a hippie at all. No, I, yeah, I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't say I. Well, you know, I spent the '60s in San Francisco. You did. Yeah. How did yeah. we gloss over? We got to do part two, man. Let's <laughs> just before I let you go for part one. What's the feeling that you get when you think about all these characters that you've had a chance to collaborate and commune with and ultimately be connected to for so many years in this life? What is the feeling that you would describe? Uh, it, it's been absolutely delightful. Um, these are all really super fine people. Um, and it's it, it, it's like Jerry came out to the farm and he sat, we sat around Ken's round table and just listening to him talk. It's just enlightening. I, I don't have anything to say, but when you get together two brilliant, brilliant people, just to listen to their dialogue is, for me, that's, that's a remarkable theater. <laughs> Dude, that is the, that is, I mean, just, just let me, let me hang there, man, for, I mean, let me, let me soak it up. I cannot imagine what those conversations must have been like. I mean, that's, <laughs> but I mean, <clears throat> I guess, you know, for my kids and all these young cats, you know, the hippies, I mean, you could say that all of a sudden 75 million cats were out in the marketplace at that time with a lot of money and they they fundamentally changed a lot about society and not all of it for the better. But now we have millennials who are being crushed under the weight of debt, uh, looking not to have the same kind of opportunities or avenues to get ahead in society because of the crushing cost of living and a move towards conformity. And I just wonder what, when I think about Babs and I think about all these guys, especially they're still here. You guys are still with us and it's so important what are the, the the intrinsic values that we have kind of lost in this material world that you know are at the forefront of pranksterism i mean what would be those values that need to come back for the younger generations um the pranks um Pranks have gotten lost here. What have they turned into? Uh, uh, I mean, what? I mean, is it is is it something about don't take what you do seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously? Or I don't even know what is that. What? Because I mean, Walker went through the whole thing about pranking. I mean, Keezy could get up at a Vietnam rally and say, "By the way, all the cats with the pins on their on their lapels, they're the FBI agents." And then he'd start singing, or he he'd, he'd get on the harmonica and play "Home on the Range." And the next thing you know, everyone's disarmed. But that's not really a prank. That's just genius. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I mean, are you talking about people taking themselves less seriously, less vain? What? What? what I, I just, I'm trying to hang on to something because someday the pranksters won't be here. Someday I won't be. I mean, I just want to pass along the essence of that whole <laughs> thing. And if you if you can encapsulate that, what would it be? Cheesy. The crackers. 
Well, you you know, you I guess you had to be there when. I mean, if you knew the guy, you loved him, and it's there's no one like him. Did he ever yeah. have an off day? Like, what was I mean? Aside from the diabetes, oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. if you went, was, was there some? Were there times where there's like, wow, this was like a, a normal time. This was like normal. Like it was, it was not like insane prankster. Like, were there days like that where you could just go over and maybe, you know, just watch a ball game and just hang? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. no. Yeah. Foot, football on Sunday was always, you know, the Sundays were always just lovely days out at the farm. It was a nice day. There were always twenty to thirty-five people out there. <laughs> Deets, man, dude, I'll get this up. <clears throat> you rocked this interview, man, and thank you for. Um, I hope it was fun for you, and and and. No, yeah, you you made it very easy, Jerry. Oh, thank you, man. I knew it. Yeah, no, I've, I've become pretty good at this, but I, you know, man, like, thank you for all your contributions, and it's always, like, it's just cool to keep picking people off and finding other cats, and, you know, maybe I'm not holding my breath. Maybe one day Hagen will come. Yeah. You know, yeah. Hagen will come to the table, but it's it's okay. I mean, it's a, it's important more than ever before because we are really churning out a lot of sheep and not enough shepherds. And yeah. you know, Keezy was the shepherd, but all those all the cats around you, including yourself, in your own way, were independent thinkers. So, and we got to get back to that. So, bless you, man, and we'll we'll be in touch. Okay, Jake. Thank you. Later on. Bye. Bye. Never trust a prankster. Philip Dietz rocking out on the Jake Feinberg show. We'll be back with Justine Bennett in a little bit. Stand inside the rain 